Good morning. Good to see you at the busiest time of year in which so many people feel so harried as there are so many things uh, to do and to get done. When we moved back uh, to California from Iowa about five and a half years ago, uh, we were at my sister's home in Rancho Cucamonga for uh, Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving weekend is a time when people start uh, putting their lights up and, and decorate uh, their homes, especially in Iowa where it, it gets uh, very cold very quickly and snow starts falling. Uh, for example, they've already had plenty of snow. Uh, if you don't get your lights up on the house uh, by the end of Thanksgiving weekend, you may never get them up because the roof will be too slippery to, to be up there and, and you, you have to hurry. Uh, our five kids were reared largely in Iowa. In fact, the two youngest were born in Iowa, and so it was new for uh, my youngest sons uh, to be in California at Christmas time. This was going to be their very first Christmas. So uh, we spent the day in, in Rancho Cucamonga on Thanksgiving Day, and as we're driving out of the development, the Christmas lights were up and on, including, of all things, on palm trees. And, and my youngest uh, looked in, in disbelief at the way the Californians uh, were putting up their lights and said, why do they even bother to put up lights? There is no snow. And I thought, that, that is interesting. Uh, in, in Iowa, the reflection of the lights on the homes on the snow, uh, it just feels uh, like Christmas. And I hope, in, in spite of all the business of the season, and so many things happen in your life uh, that you're beginning to prepare your heart properly and spiritually uh, for what Christmas is really about. Uh, not so much the hairiness of getting lights up on the house or on your palm trees, uh, but actually about the celebration of how salvation was sent to us uh, from our Heavenly Father in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'd like to draw our attention this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 in which the background is given regarding uh, the forerunner of uh, the promised Messiah. But we'll pick up this story uh, as the announcement comes to Mary's uh, surprise uh, as the angel announces to her that she will be uh, the mother of the promised Messiah. What a shock it was for her and how it was uh, that she came to understand how important this is and what it means to us. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, that's referring back earlier in the chapter to the length of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now you may recall, if you think back into the Isaiah story, that the promise of the coming Messiah uh, became much more specific. Uh, in Isaiah 7 and in Isaiah 9, uh, we get the indication uh, that the sign will be that a virgin 
will be with child. The announcement will be that this is going to be God with us. Uh, prior to that time, it wasn't uh, exceptionally clear that the promised Messiah would be God come in the flesh, that God would be among us as the God-man, God incarnate in the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and as the story is now explained to Mary, uh, she is trying to understand what this means and how all this uh, will affect her life and what part she should play uh, in bringing about uh, the Lord's will. In their culture, when you became an engaged, it was uh, far more than, would you like to get married? Yes, let's get married. It was actually a legal contract that was negotiated, uh, and you would wait a year uh, before uh, you would actually have the wedding ceremony and begin to live together. Uh, part of that was the understanding that you needed to be a pure virgin and that you would demonstrate that uh, through the waiting of a year. So this betrothal to Joseph, uh, to her as a virgin, both of them descendants of David, to whom was given the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that uh, through him the Messiah would come. There would be a king that would rule on David's throne forever. Uh, so though they were not important members of the royal family, they were in the line of descent. And uh, this virgin receives an unusual visitor in the sense that the angel Gabriel is sent to her to make this announcement. Coming in in verse 28, he says to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Uh, the term translated uh, favor does not mean that uh, you're so special that you have earned uh, this place, though you realize as you study Mary's life that she really is uh, quite a phenomenal young lady. Uh, she is very deeply spiritual. You'll see this uh, in her song of joy about uh, her uh, desire to submit herself to the will of the Lord in this and be who it is that the Lord wants her to be and to have the honor of uh, bearing uh, the promised Messiah. But the word translated favor is the word for grace, that God graciously has picked you and will work through you. If you think about it and started to dwell on the concept, you realize that everything that God does in our lives is not because we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. It is a gift from God, undeserved, as a blessing upon us. And so we don't relate to God the Father uh, with some sort of accounting in which we think, well, I have done so well, surely I deserve your blessing. We come before the Lord of uh, a God who righteously could reject us, but does not because he extends his grace to us. And if he graciously calls on us to do something uh, that is uh, very difficult, but is uh, a great blessing to many, uh, then we would want to allow him to favor us in this way. And he calms her a bit by saying, the Lord is with you. 
The Lord is comforting you, strengthening you, empowering you, making it possible for you to be all that he wants you to be. Some of us, when we hear the, the ideas that the Lord have uh, and the claims he wants on our, uh, our lives, we'll say like, well, that's beyond me. I, I don't have those abilities. I don't have that strength. Uh, many of you have been asked uh, to serve in certain ways in which you say, I don't know that I would have the capability to do that. Uh, some just say I don't have time, but many of us would say, I'm not sure those are my skills. In many ways, the Lord, though, empowers us to accomplish his will and that we should not be those who are so reticent to say when called upon, uh, don't choose me. Uh, we should be those that would say, I'd be happy to serve as the Lord would empower me to do. And for uh, Mary to hear, uh, you have found favor, the Lord is with you, uh, then this would, in a sense, calm her spirit to say, uh, you can do what you don't think you may be able to do because the Lord will empower you. Verse 29, she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation uh, this was. Uh, and it is startling. Uh, not many of us meet angels. Not many of us uh, hear angels say that we have a word uh, from your heavenly father. And it would be perplexing. And many of us, in the experiences that we go through, uh, we are sometimes stymied by the thought of, I don't understand how God is going to take the circumstance I'm in right now and bring glory out of this. I don't know what he wants to do in my life right now. Why the trial that I have right before me? What would he have in mind for me? Uh, well, he has in mind our good. He has in mind to grace us to achieve in us his will in spite of the circumstances. If you think of Paul in Romans 8, verse 28, where he says that not everything that happens to us actually seems good to us, but that God does work out of the situations that happen in our life, good not only for us, but for his plan. He actually twists and changes and even overturns the tables in a sense to bring good out of the difficult circumstances in which we live and in the fallen world in which we live. And so as Mary is trying to process this news, uh, she is waiting for what's next, but she's preparing her heart to open it to the Lord's will and say, I will be willing. And that is a huge battle for each one of us, to say, I am willing to do what you would have me do. Some of us would, would say, I would like to counsel with God first and make suggestions to him. Do you remember Gideon struggling with the Lord about what the Lord would have him do? He was saying, you're going to be the mighty man who leads your people free. And he's going like, I'm not important. I don't come from an important family. I'm not an important member of my family. You got the wrong guy. You want to go somewhere else. And, and God is saying, I've picked you. And you can see he's picked a humble person, a person who doesn't think he's capable uh, even when he says he'll give him the victory, he, he says, you've got to confirm this more than once because I'm having a hard time believing that this is going to actually happen. He gets such a big army together, the Lord says to him, uh, you'll probably think that you did this in your own power, so we're going to whittle it down to a mere 300, and then you're going to go against uh, an, 
an army that you have no ability to defeat, but I will give you the victory. In that story, it's a microcosm of all of our lives in which we are saying, Lord, if you ask me to do something, do I have the right to say no? Do I have the right to counsel you and say, you've made some mistake, don't pick me, I'm not the right person, go pick someone else? If the Lord picks us, if the Lord calls us, if the Lord asks us to serve him, our answer should not be, surely the creator of heaven and earth has made a mistake. Our answer should be, I'm surprised, but I'm willing. I wasn't expecting this, but I, I am willing to do what you would have me do. That is what I want us to see from this passage. How would we respond if God asked us to do something that we would say, who? Me? This? That doesn't feel like what I was expecting to happen in my life. You really want this from me? And the answer is what God wants for us is what we should say he wants and that we want because we want to please him. The angel senses her fear. And so in verse 30, he says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. He's happy with you. One of the worst things we can possibly feel is guilt. Have you ever noticed that? Don't you hate it when you feel guilty? Uh, don't, you, don't you hate it when you know uh, that there's every reason for you to feel bad? How much more enjoyable it is to go through life with a clear conscience, uh, to go through life uh, with the sense that God is pleased with you and the sense that uh, you are willing to do whatever God has asked of you. And so comforting her, he says, you don't need to be afraid here. The Lord is with you. The Lord has found favor in you. Verse 31, here is the specific announcement. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. It's built off of uh, the ancient word for Joshua, which is God saves. And so she is beginning to understand that this has something to do uh, with how God is going to save his people and save uh, the world. The interesting thing is, she's not married yet. She is only betrothed. She has never been with a man. And so uh, she is not doubting, as happened earlier in the story in Luke 1, in which uh, someone was disciplined for his doubt. Uh, but she is saying, uh, Mechanically, I don't understand how this is going to take place. Uh, I'm, I'm perplexed about this. Uh, I am going to conceive. I'm going to bear a son. I'm going to name him the one who saves. God saves. He goes on to say, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, there is no doubt at this point in her mind, and she knows the Old Testament scripture well, as you'll see in the Magnificat, her, her song of joy in response to this. She knows the prophecy from 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 16, in which we know that the Messiah 
is going to rule from David's throne forever. If he's going to be great, he, he's going to be the son of Elion, the, the Most High. That's the equivalent of saying uh, he is the son of Yahweh. He is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He will have the throne of his father, David. Uh, this means she is the mother of the promised Messiah. This is amazing news. This is perplexing news. This is shocking news. Uh, this is a great honor and yet a huge uh, responsibility. In fact, uh, we read in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. When Jesus came, even in his first coming, he came offering the kingdom. Uh, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. And consequently, because they would not accept him as their spiritual Lord and only wanted liberation from the oppression of the Romans, uh, he pulled back and held back uh, the establishing of his kingdom and began to teach that he'd have to come again. And we learn that he will come again to a repentant Israel at that point. And when he returns in his second coming is when he'll actually then establish his kingdom. He will rule literally, politically, from Jerusalem for a thousand years over this earth. And then he will turn his kingdom over to the Father. The Father will recreate, destroying and recreating this earth into a new earth. And forever, uh, Jesus will reign in the eternal state on that new heaven and that new earth. An amazing prophecy of what God's intentions are. But Mary asks the simple question, how can this be? How could this be accomplished? Since I'm a virgin, I don't know a man. And miraculously, God has decided how this will be. He says, uh, and this is expressed uh, accurately but gently, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So there will be a miraculous conception in which there is no human father. A virgin birth because she, even up until the birth, will have never known a man. And this child will be protected from having the curse of sin upon him. He will be a holy child. He will be the son of God himself. I don't know if you've ever uh, thought deeply about why the Messiah came to be born by a virgin. And I don't know if you've even imagined, uh, is there another way in which God could have accomplished this? Well, the incarnation would not have happened unless it was necessary. In fact, Paul reasons that if salvation could have been accomplished by us keeping the law, then it would have. Because for God to send his son to die in our place is so difficult and so horrible 
that God surely would have rather to just require us to keep the law to be saved. But he says the reason God sent his son is because we could not be saved by keeping the law or working hard to please him in some respects. It was necessary then for God to send his son to be the savior of the world. He then, therefore, needs to be both God and man at the same time. The incarnation then becomes necessary. Again, if you use this logic, why would God ask the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, to veil his glory and to come with such humble birth to be rejected by men and then die in our place to pay for our sins. Why would he do that? Well, it was absolutely necessary. Why does he have to be both God and man in the same person? In order for the value of his death to be capable of saving us. For example, Paul argues, what if there was a righteous man who was not guilty of sin, and therefore would not have to die for his own sins, could he give his life for another? That's a very interesting thought. Unfortunately, there's not one of us that is not cursed by Adam's sin on our behalf. Not one of us who has not inherited a sin nature from Adam. Not one of us who does not ratify the fact that we were born in sin by committing personal acts of sin. All of us are rebellious people. So there are no righteous men who could give their lives for someone else. But if, you, if there were one, he could only give his life in exchange for one other person. So how can the value of the death be able to cover for anyone who wishes to believe? The Messiah had to be a human being, had to be one of us, to be our high priest, to relate to us. Jesus Christ was tested in all ways like we are tested, yet without sin. He is the perfect high priest for us. He was born as one of us, yet without sin. And he understands our needs, understands what it's like uh, to live a difficult human life. And he sympathizes with us. And he then can die in our place as our representatives, and it is the God-man, a man capable of dying, as God, the value of his death, infinite, capable of paying for as many people as would believe. We therefore need a birth of a child who is the God-man. You might say, well, couldn't God, if he needs a God-man, just create a God-man in heaven and send him down to us? Well, I, I suppose theoretically, in one sense, he perhaps could have, but we wouldn't connect with him and understand him and have him relate to us as truly one of us. The fact that Jesus 
receives his human genetic code from Mary herself so that he has her eyes, he has her nose. He came into this world through her womb. It causes us to believe he truly is human and one of us. The fact that he was born helps us understand his true humanity. The fact that he has two parents a mother and a father, a mother who's genetically his father, a father who adopts him as his legal son, helps us understand that he is free from the curse of sin and is a righteous savior for us. He is fully divine and fully human, and we perceive this because of, in many ways, the way in which this is happening to Mary. The God-man, a real human being, God come in the flesh, the promised Messiah, the Son of the Most High, the one who will rule over David's throne forever. This is how it happens. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Well, one of the things that God does to help us believe him is that he has both near prophecies and far prophecies. And the far prophecies still have not been fulfilled. And we say, how do I know I can trust him when he tells me the future that's far away? by the future that will be fulfilled in the near present. He often gives two prophecies, a near fulfilled one and then a long fulfilled one. And the, the near fulfillment helps us believe him for the far fulfillment. Uh, listen to what he then says. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. The fact that your cousin is pregnant miraculously is a sign to you. Have you ever been shocked by something God has done in your life where you said, I did not expect that? But God has blessed me in a way in which I didn't expect it. And he has answered a request I somewhat doubted that he would answer. And here it is. That causes us to trust him for even bigger things in the future. And the sign given to her of her cousin Elizabeth being pregnant and in her sixth month is a sign to Mary all that I'm telling you really is coming true. For nothing is impossible with God. And we should relate that to ourselves in the way in which he works in our lives according to Romans 8.28, that he does work things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So what will Mary's response be? How will she respond Will she believe? Will she accept this? Will she try to wriggle out of it like Gideon did? Will she try to barter with God as so many have before and, and say, well, let's do it a different way. I'll take something similar but a little different. 
No. Mary responds exactly as you would hope that she would respond. She says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. I am your servant. I'm willing to do whatever you want to do. She says, May it be done to me according to your word. She willingly submitted to God's plan. My daughter and I uh, have a habit of actually texting to each other uh, verses that are meaningful to us in a particular day. Sometimes it's related to the devotional studies that we're doing. Sometimes it's related to something that has uh, happened in our life that day. And we don't usually give contextual explanation. We just send by text the verse, the verse that is meaningful to us. And that kind of clues us in as to how to pray for each other and, and basically to encourage each other. So not at Christmas time. I think it was uh, uh, deep into uh, the spring. She sent me Luke chapter 1, verse 38. And I'm thinking like, that's a Christmas verse. You only send that verse at Christmas time. Uh, we only study Christmas stories at Christmas time. That's just our tradition. So you're in the wrong section of scripture if it's springtime and you're sending me Luke 138. Well, I read it and I tried to think, well, what's going on in her life at this time? Uh, why is she thinking these thoughts? Now listen to, again, what Mary is saying. May it be done to me according to your word. What she was saying to me is she was saying there was something happening in her life to which she needed to submit to the will of God in her life. There was something that was stretching her beyond that which she wished to be stretched, frankly. And there was something that, in a sense, was a little hard to accept, but worthy of being accepted because this was God's will for her. And so she was saying, I'm adopting the disposition of Mary, who is a great example to us, and I am saying back to God in prayer, be it done to me according to your word. That's one of the best prayers that any of us could pray any month of the year. And so consequently, though... You, you may not think of the Christmas story all year long. What I would suggest that we do is that we say the verbiage of each of these biblical stories is not meant to be tied solely to a particular time of year or what happened to Mary in some way that's completely unrelated to me. I'm not a virgin about to conceive with the Messiah. So what does that have to do with me? What it has to do is how she responds and how she submits and how she says, I am your bond slave. Therefore, let it be done in my life. I accept what you want from my life. I will cooperate. I will be there and do that as you want me to do. And I find that so ratifying and encouraging to us and a great example to us. 
our understanding is Mary was not a very old lady. In those days, they married young, younger than most of us are marrying these days in America. And so you would say that as a young maiden, she has this level of maturity in her life? Yes. So what does she do first? She runs to see Elizabeth. And what is she saying by doing that? She's saying, I want to encourage Elizabeth because she has suffered being barren her entire life. She's now an old woman thinking she would never conceive. She's pregnant. This is wonderful. I'm going to be pregnant too. I want to see with my own eyes what's happening here. I want to respond to the revelation. Verse 39, she arose, went and hurried to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias, greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby John the Baptist leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Prior to the new covenant, we didn't all receive the Holy Spirit 24 seven. Uh, the Holy Spirit would come and go. And so it's a great blessing that the Holy Spirit would come upon Elizabeth and that John the Baptist still only six months gestation in the womb is jumping with joy of the mother of his savior in Mary's womb. She cried out with a loud voice, blessed are you among women. This means well-spoken of are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. You're, you're the most honored in this way. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord, she's saying the mother of my God has come to me, would come to me. By the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth understands that Mary is carrying in her womb the promised Messiah. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. She's not skeptical. She's, she's joyous here. She is encouraging Mary with revelation from God that that baby she has in her womb really is Jesus, the Savior of the world. And God comforts Mary and Elizabeth by the joyous revelation to each other of their experiences. And this is how God comforts us. He comforts us through other people saying things to us. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever listened to someone talk to you and you say to yourself, why is he saying this? I don't even know why he's saying this. I don't know what this is for. Uh, why am I having this conversation with this person? What we should say to ourselves is, Perk up my ears, what is the Lord doing in my life that we would want this conversation to take place so I would hear these words, so I'd have this going on? Uh, a brother of mine was, was encouraging me that when I'm sitting in an open area like the, uh, the airport lounge waiting to take a flight, if someone wants to strike up a conversation with me, let him talk. And talk back that these are divine appointments that we may not realize there could be divine appointments happening in our lives all the time in which we have no sense that God wants to encourage us and wants us to encourage the other person through this conversation. You can see this happening with Mary and Elizabeth. She says to her, blessed, the word for happy, happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Listen to Mary's words then. 
My soul exalts my Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Notice how she personalizes this. God is my personal Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good times and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Where does this kind of thought come from? This is very similar to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. This means she studies the Old Testament. She sympathizes with a Hannah who has wished all her life to be pregnant and is still barren. And as Hannah rejoices in God's provision in her life, Mary knows that story and it just flows from her as she encourages Elizabeth, who is like a Hannah, to see God's work in her life. So often we say to ourselves, well, I guess God can't, I guess God won't, I guess I just must be miserable. And the answer is no, no, no. Look at a Hannah, look at Elizabeth, look at a Mary and say, God has plans. But his plans aren't on my timetable. They're not based on my convenience necessarily. They're based on the weaving together of various human events to bring the greatest glory to God. And so I should submit myself to God's plan, God's timing, the way in which God wants to use me. And I should allow him to have his way with me. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home and had even more difficult things to face because by this time she was starting to show and it was going to place her in a very awkward situation among her people and Joseph would have to protect her. It's all the plan of God. We'll be watching the Christmas story from the, the Sunday school children uh, tonight and in many ways, it'll seem uh, like uh, such a simple story. But as adults, as, as those who've experienced the Christmas story many times and who have thought about it a lot, uh, we need to read these familiar words from the Christmas story more slowly, more carefully, more reflectively, and ask ourselves, what would the Lord have for me in these words? How would he ask me to apply these words to my life? How are his actions in treating his servants in the scripture similar to how he treats us? Therefore, could I say with Mary, be it done to me according to your word? May it be true of each one of us. Would you pray with me? Father, what a stretching experience it would have been uh, to see what is happening in the lives of uh, these 
heroes of the Christmas story. Uh, we think of Mary, who would say, how can this be since I am a virgin, since I've never been with a man? And yet how she can also say, I am your bond slave, be it done to me according to your word. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us be willing to accept your will in our lives and say, I'm ready, I am willing, I want to serve you. Show me the way that I can best serve you. May I glorify you. Uh, Father, we have seen in story after story after story in the scripture that you stretch each one of us to increase our faith uh, and to test our obedience. I pray that by faith, uh, by seeing the promises that you've given to us and the fulfillment of these promises, we believe you for even bigger things in the future and that we would be servants that serve you well and that glorify your name. Pray for the kids in the Christmas uh, program tonight. We pray that you would encourage them, help them not to fear, and I pray uh, that it would be a great blessing to many of us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.